Well, good morning, everybody. Um, My name is uh, Ethan, Pastor Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open it to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 11, in which which we uh, will will be. Um, If you're new, hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Can we put our hands together for those who are new and your guests? Thank you for... Uh, Thank you that you decided to spend a little bit of time with um, us. Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. And as I begin, I want to say uh, that even in my own uh, life, I find myself um, being challenged and being stretched in this season uh, of our our church. Um, What I mean by that is that I am a pastor, I am an individual that uh, regularly am finding myself to be challenged to grow into a place in which I am not yet. Um, I'm reading things, I'm studying things as we're walking through this gospel of Mark and looking at the life of Jesus. I find myself over the past few weeks really being challenged with what Jesus says and what he desires and commands over me. Uh, Things that are not true of my life, things that I want to be true of my life, things that I'm stepping into in the process of growing and following him. Which means I am a pastor who changes. Now, none of us like change, but progress only happens through change. And what I found myself over the past few weeks specifically is experiencing things and learning things that I didn't necessarily hear from my Bible teachers at seminary. Nothing against them, nothing wrong about them. I absolutely love my time there. But what I find is that um, as I study and as I grow and as I look into God's word and what God would have for us and our church, I find myself growing and changing into what God would, I think, have for us and our um, church. Now, that makes a lot of um, church folk uh, a little bit troubled, all right? The pastor's supposed to be the guy, he's got to figure it figured out. He went to school. He went to divinity school. He's got to figure it figured out. He's got all of his eyes uh, dotted. He's got all of his cross T's. He knows what he's talking about. And you need to stand up there and you need to teach us and you need to understand and you don't need to have any guesses. You don't have any uh, second guessing of yourself or anyone or any curiosity. You need to know exactly what you're saying all the time and never ever change from what you're saying. And you know. The reality is that we um, don't like to be uncomfortable and to step outside of the tribe in which we find ourselves as being comfortable in. Now, this is true of many different aspects of our lives. We create tribes in which we find ourselves to be comfortable and we like our tribes and we have people in our tribes that look like us and think like us and act like us and make as much money as we do and they vote like we do and we like them and we're comfortable in our tribe. But the people that are outside of our tribe, we don't like them and we throw stones at them because they're different than us and we don't want to uh, like anybody else that isn't like, like us. It's tribalism. It happens ethnically. People that look different than you, we, they're in a different tribe than you and so there's animosity, there's division between people that are perhaps ethnically different than you, which is I lo- what I love about our church church is becoming a multi-ethnic church, which means we are turning the world upside down in the division that exists in our, our world. Absolutely love that. We create tribalism, not just ethnically, but even uh, so- socially and economically. We create tribalism, of course, politically. Um, unbelievable amount of tribalism that exists there. But then it goes even further. There's uh, ge- geographical tribalism. All those people that are northerners and the people that are southerners and we create tribes and act like our geographic location makes you superior to other people. 
and those people in the Midwest, and those people in California, were those God-forsaken people. Like, uh, we, we, we create, we, we just create, tri- we just love it. We just, this and that, we just create tribes. We also do this theologically and denominationally, in which we like to have a church and a pastor and theology where we've got nice lines that are drawn everywhere and we have a nice cute little box in which we fit theologically in which we feel comfortable theologically and we don't ever step out of that box because to step out of that box would not to be in association with the tribe which means the tribe may not like you anymore and the tribe may try to excommunicate you if you don't actually fit inside the lines of the tribe you see the issue here uh, the issue is that we create tribes and then find ourselves committed to a tribe more committed than we are to Scripture. And God never called me to be committed to a theological tribe. God never called me to do that. God called me to be committed to his word and what his word says. Whatever his word says, then I submit to that. I don't uh, submit Scripture to my tribe. I submit my tribe to Scripture and let it change. And that's What has been happening in my life over the past few weeks in this journey that I am taking you on, I believe as God is revealing to us and God growing in us what bold faith is as people. And the passage that we are diving into today has completely wrecked me in so many ways, Um, has challenged me and stretched me and bent me from what I have understood historically to been the concept of what I think bold faith is. And I just want to say to you, it is a good thing that God stretches us. It's a good thing that God grows us. When you stop growing, when you stop changing, progress inevitably stops happening. And I believe that this is part of the evolution of our church and the growth of our church and the ultimate destination in which God would want us to be as a a church. So if um, if you're looking for a a church that has nice, clean lines, and we stay inside the lines. We never veer from them. I'm sorry to disappoint you. This is not the place. Uh, you will be disappointed. So Mark chapter, Mark chapter 11. A couple people, you, couple of you like that. That's fine. Mark, I'm joking. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Let's dig in. Mark 11, verse 12, it says this. And on the following day, they came from Bethany, and he was hungry. This is Jesus seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He's hoping for some nice, healthy um, figs that he can eat. Anybody like figs, by the way? I think figs are like really uh, odd uh, fruit. We had, I, grew up in, um, I grew up in Florence, South Carolina before we moved to Myrtle Beach. I remember 218 Hutchinson Avenue, kind of a one-lane uh, road, and we had a fig tree. We had a huge fig tree that was in our backyard. We hated figs, and so the kids, we plucked them off and used the baseball bats and hit them into uh, the woods <laughs> behind our house. But Jesus is hungry. He's looking for a fig, and it says, seeing in the distance, he sees a fig tree and leaf, which he perhaps maybe assumed that there were going to be nice, plump figs on there. He went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He speaks to the fig tree. How many of you just think that's a little odd? I, I don't, how, some, of you are, uh, some of you are here, um, you're people that talk to yourself. Um, it's weird to me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, but uh, Jesus not only just speaks to himself, apparently he speaks to trees. And he speaks to the, the fig tree, and he speaks to it and says, he essentially curses it and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it because they are nearby. Look with me at verse 20. 
And they passed by, we're skipping a few passages because I'm going to jump back to that next week. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi or master, look, the fig tree that you cursed has uh, withered. The fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, what in the world is happening here? Uh, there is this odd, bizarre story. Do you see a little bit of a pattern if you've been here for a few weeks, that there are bizarre stories that are connected to Jesus and the things that he's trying to do and to communicate? This bizarre story of this fruitless fig tree. For whatever reason, it didn't have fruit on it. Perhaps it was the season, as the scripture says. Uh, for whatever reason, it didn't have figs. And so Jesus is going to use this opportunity as an analogy, as a metaphor to try to determine, uh, try to d demonstrate something that is true about his people and what he wants his people to be. Ultimately, the fruitless fig tree is a metaphor for faithless Israel. At this point in the narrative of God's people, God's people have arrived at a place in which they are ultimately faithless people. You'll see this next week when we look into the temple and the story about what's going on in the temple of God. The people of God are so far from the spirit of God. The people of God are so devoid of the power of God. Their fruitless lives um, are actually are, uh, depictive of their faithless um, inactivity um, with God and knowing God and following God. And Jesus is using this story in this situation to demonstrate to them what it means and what it looks like to have faith in God. And he's repeatedly, continually, and emphatically, over and over again, trying to encourage his disciples to have faith in God. And I just, I just want to say this as well this morning, that knowing God um, isn't just holding to a set of beliefs about God, knowing God is holding the hand of God. It's not just knowing about him, just not knowing ideas about him, knowing truths about him, knowing beliefs about him. Those are fine. Knowing God is it's not just holding to those things, it's holding to his hand. It's walking with him. And his people have gotten to a point in this narrative of their history in which they are completely devoid of knowing and walking with God and holding his hand. And I just want to say uh, to anybody here in the room today, you show up to church and you're, you're here and you're, you're present and perhaps in your mind this is like a religious duty to God trying to operate in such a way in which you get another check on the list and try to demonstrate to God how great you are and moral you are and how religious you are for him. God doesn't care about that. God wants you. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. Knowing God, it's a dynamic, interpersonal relationship. Which you know God, you walk with him. And this is what is unbelievable about Christianity. Jesus Christ came and he entered human history not to cause a cool movement, not to do something cool historically in the history of religion. Jesus came and entered human history and went to a cross that had your name on it so that you could know God so that you could experience him, so that you could walk with him, so that you could have access to the Father. And Jesus went to the cross on your behalf and accomplished everything that was necessary for your salvation. And then we get to walk with God. We get to know God. The wall that was 
standing between us and God was torn down. The wall of sin and shame was torn down on the, the cross through the gospel because of what Christ has done. And we have a God who is a big God. He is a, he's so big. You don't, I mean, we, we forget. We're like lulled to sleep. We forget how big God is, what he can do, the power that he has. And anytime we forget who God is, it impacts the way that we live and the way that we operate. Here, I'll, I'll say it this way. I've said this over the last couple weeks. We have, as a church, big faith and big prayers because we have a big God. We got a, a big God, and we should have big prayers and a big faith because of who he is. And you know, the opposite is true as well. If you have a small God, then you have small faith and small prayers. Because your faith is always a direct correlation. The size of your faith is always a direct correlation to the size of your God. And when I find myself praying small, measly prayers, weak, half-hearted prayers with no hope and no expectation and no conviction and no unction, it's because I've forgotten who God is and how big he is. I've forgotten what he wants over my life. I'll say, um, I'll say this as well. Small faith is an offense to God. Small faith is an offense to God. I just kind of wonder, like, how often God is offended by the way that I operate and interact with him. Jesus repeatedly is rebuking his followers for little faith. He's rebuking his followers for small faith because they didn't quite get it in their journey. They hadn't quite understood who he was and what he was and creates offense to God. Reminds me of a story about a year or two ago. My oldest daughter, Nora, she would have been about four or five at this point in time. I can't remember exactly the situation and how this happened, but apparently she was uh, hanging out with uh, some people, perhaps some rather tall people, and she comes home one day, and literally, uh, she looks at me, and the very first words of, out of her mouth, it was one line, I remember it to this day, she said, Daddy, you're not a very tall man. I was taken back. What did you do? Well, I rebuked her on the spot for that <laughs> offense. Took away her toys for a straight month. She wasn't able to play it. But her perception of me, which I'm a, on a good day, I'm a, a strong 5'9", but her perception of me was that I wasn't a very tall a man. And that was, in some ways, offensive. Um, in some ways, my identity is tied to my four-year-old. <laughs> but I took offense to that statement. And I can't help but think, sometimes in the way that we act and the way that we operate, if we look at God and say, God, you're not a very big God. Man, we, we, we just, we're prone, like these disciples, I'm prone to forget how God is. So one of the most powerful things about a worship gathering, the reason why 
there should be priority in the worship, the gathering of God's people we come to worship because it reinforces and helps us to understand the view of God and who he is in our life. It's a once a week opportunity to be reminded of the things that we often forget. If you're like me, I kind of forget by Monday or Tuesday, I'm kind of off doing my own thing. No, this is an opportunity for us to come and to be reminded of who he is and what he wants for our lives. See, small faith, it's offensive to God. And Jesus makes this crystal clear with his disciples. And God is never honored by small faith. It goes on and it says this in verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, which when I was growing up in the King James, the word was verily, which I'm not sure what that means. But truly, anytime Jesus uses this word, it's, he's essentially saying, truly, I say to you, this is emphatic, this is important, write it down, you can take it to the bank. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. How many of you also have issues with these verses? Well, I, think, I don't think Jesus is being literal here. I think, what Jesus, I think Jesus is just using um, uh, some irony. I think he's just using a metaphor. I don't really think that Jesus is actually meaning what he is saying. Surely, Jesus couldn't mean that if you had the right kind of faith, and the right size of faith, you would be able to speak to a mountain and it would be thrown into the sea. Surely, surely that isn't what Jesus means. However, when I walk through the scriptures, as I did this past week, and I look over and over and over again, it seems that Jesus is saying that we have at our disposal through our faith really to be able to do anything that God would want to do and that nothing is impossible for God. There's several verses. I'll, I'll, I'll read them for you. First uh, John 5, 14 says this. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that we have the request that we ask of him. James 5, 13. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Matthew 18, 19. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. John 14, 12, greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. How many of you are like, how long is he going to keep going with this? John 16, 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. It seems to me to be the case that Jesus is saying through faith, you have the ability to ask whatever you would want to ask and it will be done by God. It seems like Jesus is saying if you had the faith, you could say to the mountain, you could speak to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it would be thrown into the sea. So what in the world 
is Jesus trying to get us to understand about faith? I think in my life, perhaps in your life as well, I've operated in such a way, and this is how I'm changing, I've operated in such a way, in a one-dimensional view of faith, that faith is just the ability to believe that there is a God, or just the ability to believe that there is a God who exists. Faith is just the ability to believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and therefore, if you are a person of faith, therefore, you trust that there is a God and you trust that he exists. And there's a little icing on top every now and then you get to pray and you get to ask some things of God and sometimes he does it for you and it's a pretty cool deal. I think that's a one-dimensional way of viewing faith. I think what God is trying to get us to understand in faith is that we have the ability as the people of God to believe of things and speak things to be that aren't to be because God wants them to be. Um, I'll, I'll say it this way. Faith is the ability to speak something to be because you know what God wants to be. Faith is the ability in a situation, in a moment, because you know what God wants to happen, because you know what God wants to be, you have the ability to speak it to be when it is not yet. Um, I'll, passage that just completely, I've never seen it like this before, and it completely changed or is changing the way that I'm thinking about this. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of like the, people call it the hall of faith. It's like the faith chapter. Um, Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is having a conviction of something that isn't to be. It isn't yet happened. It isn't yet in existence. But faith is believing that it will exist and that does exist even when it doesn't exist. You see, it's it's a little bit deep, but it's having the conviction. It's having the assurance. It's without a shadow of a doubt, having a conviction of what God wants to do in a situation when it doesn't happen to exist yet. That's what, what faith is from what he's saying in this passage. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's what he's saying. He's connecting faith to the way that God operates. How did God operate? When God made the heavens, when God made the world, when God made the universe, how did he do it? He didn't sprinkle like fairy dust, you know, magic fairy dust, and then create things. He didn't put together a magic formula and potion to be able to... How did, how did God create? He created by the, by the word of his mouth. You with me? By speaking by saying, by communicating. He spoke things to be that weren't yet to be. He spoke something out of nothing. He spoke things into existence that weren't yet in existence yet. If you go all the way back to Genesis, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, um, it says this, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. God said, let the waters be gathered and let the dry land appear. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God said, let us make man in our image. Eight times 
God speaks something to be that isn't to be. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what faith is. Faith is the conviction of things that aren't seen. Faith is the conviction that something can be that isn't yet to be. There's a story that um, is uber crazy in the Old Testament. Story of uh, Joshua and the people of God. God is leading them to the promised land. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua is the leader of God's people. Some of you are familiar with the story. If not, I'll, I'll help you out. Joshua is the leader of God's people. He's the commander of the armies. All right, and God spoke to him. It says in Joshua 10 that God said, I will give you victory over your enemies. Five kings had come together of five different nations and come to try to defeat God's people. But God said, I will give you victory today in this land over these enemies. Joshua says, okay. So he gets his armies together. He gathers his armies. Um, he leads them into battle. He leads them into a war. And they are fighting. They're trying to defeat the enemies of God, the ones who are warring against him. Joshua notices we haven't quite won yet, but the sun is going down. It's starting to get a little bit dark, and if we don't handle business right now, it won't be able to be finished today. But God said that we need, that we're going to have victory, that he has given us the victory today. They're crazy. So Joshua recognizes that there is an obstacle in between his situation. There's an obstacle between him and the promise of God. There is a wall, there is uh, something that is trying to uh, defeat the promise of God, which he has already been, been, been said, and for, for that, there was darkness. And so Joshua, it says, literally, he prays to God, and he speaks, and he commands the sun to stand still, and the moon, by the way, it says, and the moon. He speaks, and he says, out of his mouth, command that the sun stand still. I wouldn't even have that category, you know, I, I don't even, that wouldn't even been like a thought that I should even consider that that was a possibility in the situation. But Joshua, he's like, um, God has already said something to be, but there seems to be a hindrance in between my reality and what God has said should be. And therefore, in faith, knowing what God has already said, I'm going to speak something to be in order to uh, take hold of the promise of God for this moment. Are you with me? He is speaking something, he's declaring something to be in faith because he's so assured of the word of God and what God wants in that moment that he's able to speak it to happen and it happens. I kind of think like God was, um, Joshua is praying and Joshua says, um, I command the sun to stand still. And I imagine God was like, whoa, that's a new one for me. That's a big one. I'm not trying to minimize the sovereignty of God or the foreknowledge of God. We see Jesus in the New Testament. He's amazed by people's faith. He's like, wow. I imagine God was like, wow. You want it? You got it. That's going to show off my glory like crazy. You want it? You, I'm going I'm to do that. I kind of wonder if God is waiting for us to have some bold, audacious faith like that. God is never offended by big prayers. He's always offended by small prayers. I kind of wonder if God is just waiting for a Joshua to stand up and say, God, I know what your promise is, and I know what you want to do in this situation, and therefore, in faith, I ask for this to happen. God, I declare and I speak for this to be even when it is not yet so. 
He speaks just like God does at the very beginning of time. Something that isn't in existence yet, he speaks it into existence because of faith. Now, at this point, those of you who have a more Baptist background than a Pentecostal background, you're freaking out right now. What exactly is he trying to say? I'll help clarify it for you a little bit. Faith is knowing God's will so well that you speak what God wants to will. A God is not a genie in a bottle in which whatever you think you want, whatever you ask, you just ask flippantly and give me this and give me that. That's not the way that it works. Faith, bold faith, it's knowing God's will so well, knowing his will so well that you speak what God wants to will in a situation. Faith is exercising in a moment the will of God, the heart of God, the mind of God for that situation. As I read earlier, John 15, 7, Jesus says that if you abide in me, you can ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. What that means is that abiding in Christ, it means to make your home in Christ. It means that you're dwelling with God, you're walking with Christ, your relationship with him is so strong, you actually know his heart and you know what he wants in that moment. You're not asking selfish desires of things that you want, you ask what he wants in a situation. It's asking what he wants. How many of you have had uh, perhaps a friend or a family member, a brother or sister, a father, a dad, a whoever, a roommate in college, um, and your relationship was so strong, your relationship was so well that you actually were able to finish each other's sentences. You ever, you ever had somebody like that where they began a sentence and you actually knew what they were going to say? It's like you sit at the restaurant and you know what they're going to order. It's like uh, they're going to the bathroom, but I know they want sweet tea because they love some sweet tea. You're able to finish sentences for one another. You, you know them so well that you're able to know what they want, know their will, regardless of what the situation is. I think faith is pressing into God and knowing God and walking with God and knowing his will, knowing his heart so well that at any moment you kind of understand what God's will would be for that situation. And therefore to exercise faith is to declare what God would want, what God wills in that moment and in that situation. And knowing God, it's, it's about knowing his heart. It's about knowing what he wants. It's about knowing his desires for your life and for your uh, situation being able to speak, speak what God wants. It's able to speak what God wills, regardless of what the opposition is, regardless of what the obstacle is, regardless of how big the mountain is, to know God's heart and to be able to speak what God's heart would be. The last verse is verse 25. It says this, Mark 11, verse 25, it says this, and whenever you stand pray, praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is a little bit of a curveball after what seems to be, after what Jesus has just said, but what he's doing is he's giving a condition, he's giving conditions in which prayers of faith, in which bold faith operates. Um, there are conditions for uh, bold faith. For here, for this situation, Jesus says, if you have anything against any, anyone, you got resentment in your heart. You got bitterness in your heart. You're harboring bitterness to someone you're not expressing. You're not giving forgiveness freely because of what that person has done to you. You're not walking in forgiveness. You're walking in unforgiveness. And Jesus says, oh, hold on. 
before you start praying, before you think that you're going to receive anything from me, before you think I'm going to answer your prayers, you need to walk in forgiveness. You need to pr practice forgiveness if you expect to actually receive from me what you want from me. And just for clarity, he's not trying to say you forgiving others is the means by which God forgives you in a justifying sense. Your justification before God is based on Christ and what his, he has done on the cross. It is already uh, taken care of. But intimacy with God and walking with God, you can't expect to have closeness and intimacy with God if you're harboring for unforgiveness in your own heart. You, so you see what he's doing here? Jesus isn't giving you a formula in which you can ask whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Jesus, give me a beamer. Jesus, give me a bigger house. Jesus, give me this, give me that. There are conditions in which bold faith operates. Um, I'll, 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 list, I'll list three of them for you real quick. Bold faith is conditional. Here's the first condition. Confidence. If you want to have bold faith, you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence in who God is. You have to believe in what he has said. You have to trust his word. You have to trust his will. You have to have confidence. James 1.6 says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He will not get what he asks for. You have to have confidence when you ask from God, when you pray from God. Hebrews 4.14 says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. Your translation may say, boldly draw near to the throne of grace, which means confident expectation in what God wants. What happens is we like to give God a back door in case he doesn't answer our prayers. We, every now and then, we pray a bold, audacious prayer, but then we um, make a few caveats at the end so that we don't look like fools if God doesn't actually answer the prayer and so that we don't look like um, idiots. One of the most common things we say is we pray for faith, we pray for healing, we pray for God to change, we pray for God to come and say, but if it's not uh, your will, then we, I mean, there is a place, there is a place, hear me out, Jesus even says, not my will, but your will be done. There is a place where we want God's will, um, but most of us use, use that as, as a scapegoat from bold faith. Um, I... I I don't want to sound demanding, God. Why not? It seems to me like every other person in the Bible was pretty demanding and pretty confident with expectation when they came to God. They came with bold faith. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, this happens to me sometimes where I'm praying um, and I'm asking God for something that's, you know, significant, whatever it might be. God, I'm praying that you would make a change in my marriage. God, I, I pray that you would, and there's something significant. God, I, I pray that you would change this situation, this person. I pray that you would heal this person. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, uh, God's not really going to do that. I'm like, oh, he's, that's what, good job, Ethan. Be bold. Be bold. God's not really going to do that. Though. That's doubting. You're, you're already doubting in the middle of a prayer. You're doubting that it is actually going to happen. You don't have confident hope and expectation and conviction of what God wants to do. You're doubting. The first condition of bold faith is confidence. Confidence in God. Confidence in his word. Confidence in what he wants. Confidence in his will. Confidence in what he wants to do in a situation. You come to him with confidence, not caveats and back doors for God to be able to get out of your prayers. The second condition 
for bold faith is closeness. Some of you ain't prayed in like three months, and then you're like, God, I need you to do this for me. Where you been for three months? Jesus says you ask whatever you ask if you abide in me. It's, it, it means a closeness. It means there's intimacy. It means that you are walking with God. You're seek, seeking him. You're pursuing him. You're wanting to know he wants. You, you can't have bold faith if you don't actually have closeness to the God of that faith. It's got to be closeness. Here's the third condition, obedience. Obedience. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. James 3, 4 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Your prayers are about yourself. Your prayers are about your own uh, good more than actually the will of God and what God wants in a situation. You're not walking in obedience, you're walking in disobedience. You're not walking in righteousness, you're walking in unrighteousness. And just so we're clear, God never blesses unrighteousness. He never blesses that. Which means we have to continually ask, not are we perfect, but are we pursuing righteousness in our lives? Are we pursuing God? Are we walking out obedience in what he has commanded us to do? Oh, but God's okay with this little thing over here. God, God's okay with this little, little secret sin over here. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's unrighteousness. It's unrighteousness. How in the world do you think that God is ever going to bless you when you're pursuing unrighteousness? He doesn't bless unrighteousness. You can't have bold faith if you don't have obedience in following him. And one of the reasons that our prayers aren't answered is perhaps because we're walking in unrighteousness. Here's, 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 what, here's what I want to say today. You were meant to move mountains. But I'm just a college student, Ethan. But I'm just an engineer, Ethan. But I'm just a school teacher, Ethan. But I'm just a middle school student, Ethan. I'm just a this, I'm just a that. You were meant to move mountains. That is God's normal expectation for you. I love the way that John Bloom says it. He's the co-founder of Desiring God with John Piper. He says this, We are meant to move mountains, to see the impossible occur through the exercise of faith in the omnipotent promises of our sovereign Lord. If we are not seeing mountains move, we are living beneath our means. We are living as paupers when we have millions in our heavenly bank account. God expects you and he expects us to be mountain movers, not for our own glory, but for his glory, for his good. God is waiting for people to have audacious and bold faith to declare what he has already declared that he will do, to know what he wants and to know what his will is and to speak that into existence in our lives and in our situation and in our city. And no mountain is too big for God. No mountain is too big for God. Some of you have 47 excuses to why God won't do this in your life. There is no mountain too big for God. Jesus looked for the biggest object that he could find where he was standing. He said, look at that mountain. If you said to that mountain, if you speak to that mountain, 
pick up, be picked up and thrown into the sea, it will be thrown into the sea. What Jesus is trying to say is that there is no situation, there is no mountain, there is no obstacle in which God cannot move. There is nothing that is too big, too far for God. And if you're like me, I, I find myself having little faith and weak faith. Um, I couldn't help but think about uh, this week, this story, just over and over in my mind this week as I was trying to process this. There's a story where Jesus tells his disciples, he's together with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and many of you are familiar with the story. He says to his disciples, let's go to the other side, which means, hey, we're going to go to the other side. We're here, but our ministry is now on the other side of this sea, and we're going to travel, we're going to go to the other side, so let's go to the other side. So the disciples, they get their stuff together, they get their tools, they get their gear, whatever they got, they, they get into the boat, they start to go across the, the other side. I'm sure they're rowing, sailing, whatever they do. Uh, they're getting across to the other side. Um, as they're halfway across this sea, a storm comes up, a huge storm, a violent storm. These are professional, uh, uh, professional fishermen. They've been doing this their entire life. A storm comes. Waves are starting to come over the bow of the boat. It's coming into the boat. The boat is starting to sink. They're freaking out. They're like, what in the world is going on? We're going to die. I'm like, where is Jesus? You remember the story? Jesus is asleep on the boat. It says his head was on a pillow. He's like taking a nap. Um, and they go wake up, Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we're about to die. There is a storm out here, and we're, gonna, we're not going to make it. We're gonna, we're, this is not going to happen. What are we going to do? How in the world are we going to get through this? Jesus, why in the world are you sleeping in the middle of a storm? Where are you at? Like, Jesus uh, gets up. I, I assume he like wipe, wipes a little sleep out of his eye. He says, um, there's a storm. He looks at them, he looks at them, and he says, oh, ye of little faith, I got this. Looks at the storm, and he says, peace be still, and it stopped. Notice he spoke, spoke to the storm, peace be still, and then I, I assume he went back and said, I'm going to finish my nap, and I feel like he went back down, and he's like, What if the scenario went a different way? What if the story went a different way? What would the story look like if they had not little faith, but if they had bold faith? I kind of like this exercise in theory. Uh, so, uh, all right, if we're the disciples. We aren't people of little faith. We're people of bold faith. All right, so Jesus said we're going to the other side. He's already declared his will for us. He's already declared the situation in which we're going to, or the destination of what we're going to do. We already know what he has said. All right, we get on the boat. We're traveling across. There's a storm comes. Storm comes is a huge obstacle, the biggest obstacle that they've ever faced in their life. They feel like they're going to die, but they're not people of little faith. They're people of bold faith. So what do they do? All right. They don't freak out. They don't think they're going to die. They remember that what God has already declared, what Jesus has already declared to be true. So rather than wake Jesus up, rather than go down to the bottom and interrupt his nap, which I hate to be interrupted from a nap, they look at their situation and say, we know what God wants. We know what God wants to be true. We know what God has spoken. We already know God's will for this situation. There seems to be an, an obstacle in the way of God's will being done. So what are we going to do? What if they spoke to the sea? What if they said, peace, be still? 
I think they had everything at their disposal to be able to speak into that storm, and it would have been still. Joshua spoke, and the sun stood still. Elijah spoke, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he spoke, and then it rained again for three years. Elijah spoke, and lightning came down from heaven and uh, engulfed an altar in order to defeat the prophets of Baal. It seems to me that God's people who are closely connected to God in intimacy with him are speaking things to be all the time because of their faith in him. This past week, I was working through this, and I knew that I haven't necessarily been practicing this to the full degree that I should in my own life. And I got away for a couple days this week and did a, a, a prayer and a reading retreat. Um, and on the way there, um, I asked for God to give me a situation. I was like, I don't know what the situation is going to be, God. I just, you give me a situation that's going to require bold, bold faith. And I d- didn't know what that would be. After I was there, um, I got news from one of our staff members about a family in our church that's been struggling through a pregnancy situation. Um, throughout the entire pregnancy, the doctors have been really uh, alarmed by the kidneys and situations in the baby, also about the mother's health some serious complications in which the mother um, might have physical, phys- I mean, serious health impacts. Well, the child was um, born early this week, by God's grace, and uh, after the child was born, they continued to run tests and continued to do things. They thought they were perhaps going to have surgery. I thought it was going to be pretty significant. They were going to have to go in, and it was going to be a pretty bad deal. They had to stay at the hospital extra days. I get a text while I'm there at the lake and says, it's not looking good. The baby is struggling. They may have to do surgery. They may have to operate. They may have to stay here a few more days. And I felt my spirit. I felt like the Lord was leading me to pray, this is not my will for this child. This is not what I want for this situation. This is not uh, my heart, my mind, my will for this moment. So, okay. So I, well, I guess this is my opportunity. So I prayed. And there's dozens of other people praying, maybe hundreds. But I prayed probably the most bold, audacious prayer I've ever prayed in my life. God, this is not your will for this situation. This is not what you want for this baby. God, this is not what you would want to do in this situation. God, I know that you want to heal. I know that you want to use this child for you. I mean, to speak and to just pray whatever came to my mind and whatever I felt God was leading me to say. And just prayed the heck out of that prayer as best that I could. I got a text the, the next day. said, Reports have changed. Reports look good. The baby's in good health. They're sending them home from the hospital today. God is waiting and expecting for us to have bold faith for him. To ask. To ask. To abide in him. To walk in him. To be close to him. To hear from him. To know what he wants in a situation. And then to speak something to be that isn't to be because God said it should be. That's what faith is. So faith is, I don't know where you're at here today. You're like, this was like way over my head, Ethan. This is like way too big for me. What would it look like for you to take a step today? Perhaps pray today. Some of you, it's been a few weeks before you, since you've even prayed. What if you prayed this afternoon? What if you went on a walk this afternoon? If you prayed with God, walked with God, asked from God, what do you want for my life? What do you want for my situation? What do you want to do in my life? God, I'm listening. God, I hear from you. God, I need to hear from you about the situation. God, I need to know what you want to do. 
And God, speak to me. Let me know. Let me hear. And I'm going to walk that out in faith, and I'm going to declare it because that's what you want to be. Church, I want us to be a church of bold faith, believing God, asking God for the impossible because he is a God of the impossible. Nothing too far for him. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would help us in the journey as we try to figure out what it looks like for us to have bold faith. Uh, And for the people today that are defeated, the people today that are discouraged, the people that don't feel like this is in the cards for them, the people that feel like this is way too over their head, God, I pray that you would just minister to them, reveal yourself to them, comfort them, um, help them to know you and walk in you, and help us to be people of um, bold faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.